110, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Priestly order of Melchizedek. For is Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother, a genealogy, having neither beginning of, of days nor end of life, where resembling the God, Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of spoil. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is, from their brothers, though these are also are a descendant of Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithe from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithe are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who received tithe Pay tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the line, uh, loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. Jesus compared to Melchizedek. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Le Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arrives in this likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The song was well chosen, uh, Bali. Uh, this time we sang the great high priest, and then uh, Elder Victor uh, read the, uh, was it the catechism, uh, which helped us to understand how the <coughs> people at the time in the 17th century uh, they understood clearly about the uh, priesthood of Jesus, Jesus the great high priest. And then your prayer also uh, reveal your depth of your understanding, Jesus 
as the great high priest. And, and the scripture reading both from Psalms, I was given Psalm 110 verse 4, and then I look at <coughs> Hebrews chapter 7, uh, in fact the whole chapter Hebrews 7, I thought uh, this pretty much sum up what uh, I'm going to speak, maybe I should just take my seat, uh, that Jesus is a high priest. I think you all understand from the songs, from the catechism, from the reading of the scripture. Uh, however, I've been given the task by Pastor Micah, uh, just one verse, Psalm 110 verse 4, but since this is a topical sermon, I, I will allude to several uh, verses in the book of Hebrew, Hebrews. Hebrews have so much to talk about Jesus as being the, the high priest. Now the Reformed faith, I'm sure we are all Reformed. Reformed faith has emphasized the offices or the roles of prophet, priest, and king to discuss the work of Christ. When they talk about the redemptive work of Christ, they uh, emphasize the offices of Jesus uh, or his roles as prophet, priest, and king. Now, if you look at uh, John Calvin in the Institute of uh, Christian Religion, uh, he is the one that first recognized the importance of distinguishing the work, the importance of distinguishing uh, these three offices of Jesus, prophets, a uh, prophet, priest, and king. And in his work institute, the Institutes of Christian Religion, uh, you may look at uh, his uh, book two and, and uh, chapter 15. Uh, there are few pages only. Uh, of course, that, that volume one and volume two got a lot of things. It's almost like a systematic theology. Uh, he called attention uh, to these three offices uh, of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, and then, if you look at the Westminster Confession, the Shorter Catechism, again, it is a systematic theology uh, in the 17th century. It's a confessional formulation of Christian faith. Now, when I became a Christian, and uh, I married Constance, and then we got two children, and at the time I was serving in the Presbyterian Church in Batu Pahat, I, I mean, I've never been taught about this. You know, in uh, our Malaysian context, uh, unfortunately, even in the Bible college, I've never been exposed to, to this uh, uh, John Calvin's work, as well as the Westminster Confession, the larger catechism, and the shorter catechism. It was only uh, much later uh, I began to get acquainted with this work, then I, 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 I felt that this is so important for Christian parents uh, to take hold of all this work. Uh, they call it the divines, you know, people, the, the, the pastors and the theologians in the 17th century have assembled all this together, they work together and came up with a, like a systematic theology. It, it is really good for, for Christian parents now, the Westminster Confession in the 17th century has also alluded uh, to, the, to uh, Jesus' office as prophet, priest, and king. Now, John Calvin Institute of Christian Religion uh, emphasized the importance of the priestly office of Christ. 
Jesus as the priest offered himself as the sacrifice to atone for our sins. Now, of course, we have been very much talk about Jesus as the Redeemer. I think in most of our sermon, we hardly talk about Jesus being the high priest or Jesus as the priest. I think only the book of Hebrews delve extensively with Jesus as the high priest. Uh, Jesus' priesthood is extensively discussed in the book of Hebrews. Now, I study the book of Hebrews only the last few months. I begin to understand why it is so, because the book of Hebrews are encouraging uh, the Jewish Christian not to abandon their faith, not to go back to Judaism. It's basically helping them to see the superiority of Jesus' priesthood in contrast to the Levitical priesthood. Because Judaism, though Jewish people, the Jews, uh, they, they, they were very proud. They are very proud of their, their, their religion, Judaism. Uh, to them, is superior to any other religion. Their priesthood is something that they took pride, Levitical priesthood. It is only the high priest and the priest could enter into the temple, into the holy, the, the holy of holies, the, the high priest, and once a year into the presence of God and to intercede for them, to offer sacrifices, uh, so to speak, offer the blood of the bulls and the, and, and the lambs and all these animals to atone for their sin. And, and, and so they were very proud. But then when they were opposed and undergone persecution uh, in the early century, and there was a tendency for them to go back to Judaism. And so the book, the author of Hebrews, uh, in chapter 7, chapter 5, chapter 6, in fact, the entire book of Hebrews show them the superiority of Jesus over angels, over their prophets, over their Levitical priesthood. Now, so John Calvin, he clearly understood all this. And John Calvin in the, in the Institute of Religion, and he emphasized the importance of the priestly office of Christ, that Jesus, as the high priest, not only offers sacrifices to God, he actually offered his own life as a sacrifice unto God in order to atone for the sins of the people. He is the priest, he offers sacrifice, but the sacrifice is his life and to atone for the sin of the people. And there are two things here. God's righteous curse bars our access to him because God is so holy that sinners like us can never rush into the presence of God. We can't do that because we are sinful. And God in his capacity as a judge is angry towards us, towards sinners. And hence, an expiation must intervene in order that Christ as priest may obtain God's favor for us and appease his wrath. Simply mean that someone has to take our place. Who is that someone? Jesus, the Son of God. The perfect God and the perfect man has to be our substitute. Only then can God's wrath be appeased. And then we obtain the favor to enter into the presence of God through uh, Jesus Christ. And the priestly office belongs to Christ alone because by the sacrifice of his death, 
Jesus blotted out our own guilt and made satisfaction for our sins. Elsewhere, it talks about the satisfaction of our sins. It simply means that the righteous demand of the justice of God, that sin must be punished. And so when Jesus offered his life as a sacrifice and to atone for our sin and God's righteous demand of the justice is being satisfied. God is fully satisfied because someone has paid the price of our sin. And that someone is Jesus who is our Redeemer, who is also our High Priest. Now, the Westminster Confession, I think last week, uh, Pastor Micah led us to read. I think you can look at that again. Uh, may I ask you question 26, uh, then you answer. What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Now, of course, uh, uh, in, the, in the shorter catechism, there are, there are Bible references that show us that this uh, office of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Acts chapter 3, verse 22, I don't have time to go into that. You might want to write uh, to see that uh, the, the, in the book of Acts, when Peter was uh, uh, preaching, in fact, when Peter healed the sick, he quoted what Moses said, that God will raise a prophet after Moses. And this prophet, he referred to Jesus, who is the resurrected Lord, the prophet. Hebrew chapter 5, 6 uh, alluded to Jesus as the priest, the forever priest, after the order of Melchizedek. And then Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, talk about God installed his king on the Mount of Zion. This king is Jesus. So there are actually Bible references talking about Jesus being the prophet, priest, and king. That's why you have reformers like uh, John Calvin and the divines. They, they, they have all these references in the Bible, and they came to the conclusion that Jesus had this, prophet, uh, this office as prophet, priest, and king. Now, I want to talk a little bit more now as Christ as priest, because Elder Hamming already uh, last week preached on Jesus uh, Christ as prophet. Now, Psalms 110 verse 4 say that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Now, this is incredible, you know. Why would God swear, make an oath? God doesn't need to make an oath. When you need to make an oath, it's so that people will trust you. You swear that you don't tell lie, that this is what I say is true. But God doesn't tell lie. Why does he need to, to swear, to sworn and will not change his mind? in order to convince us that even God who does not lie and he swear by an oath to himself so that we can absolutely trust him without a shadow of doubt that what? That Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That Jesus is a permanent priest. The Messiah would be permanently appointed as priest. But of course, when you look at Psalms 110, if you study uh, Psalms 110, uh, it also talks about 
because this is a messianic psalm, uh, this is a prophecy about the Messiah, not about King David. It is a prophecy uh, that that Messiah would be permanently appointed as king and as priest, both king and as priest, his office and his role. But I'm talking more about uh, this Messianic psalm, about prophecy about the Messiah as a permanent priest. Now Hebrew, the author Hebrews quoted Psalm 110 extensively to refer to Christ as the high priest appointed by God. That means Jesus did not take upon himself to be the priest. He did not appoint, appoint himself. Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi, you know? he was from the tribe of Judah. So actually, technically, he wasn't qualified to be a priest. But he was appointed as a permanent priest. In fact, the high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, that later I will, I will, I will talk about it more. <clears throat> but I, what I wanted to say is that the book of Hebrew, the, the author, quoted Psalms 110 verse 4 extensively to refer to uh, Christ as the high priest that whom God appointed. Hebrew chapter 5 verse 6. You can turn to your Bible. You need a Bible to, to see what I'm saying. Hebrew, Hebrews verses five, uh, chapter 5 verse 6 verse 10. Chapter, chapter, six, uh, chapter 6 verse... I can't even read my own, own writing. Chapter 6 verse 20. Uh, verse 20. I think verse 20. Uh, verse 20. And then Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17 and 21. Uh, you can see the author of Hebrews quoted extensively. Of course, you have to read in the context and the, every, uh, the different chapter, different verses give uh, uh, the context, uh, 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 the writer actually give a different emphasis. But all referring to Jesus as the high priest whom God appointed after the order of Melchizedek. Now, not only would the Messiah, a Christ, be a mighty king, according to the Messianic Psalm, Psalms 110, but God the Father also made an oath that the Messiah would be a priest according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Now, in chapter 7, uh, Actually, when you read Hebrews chapter 7, it gives you the whole meaning of the Psalm 110 verse 4. Um, why, did, why did Psalm King David inspired to talk about uh, the Christ being appointed permanently as the priest after the order of Melchizedek? Now, when you read Hebrews chapter 7, you see that uh, the Melchizedek was both a king and also a priest. And in fact, it was first, he was first mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. It's a very mysterious figure. You know, he was a king, king of uh, Salem or Jerusalem, but he was also a priest and who offered the bread and the wine, almost like you all can read into it, uh, like us, uh, 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 21st century Christian understood it to be like uh, pointing to the, the Lord's Supper. 
Uh, I'm not so sure about that because I've not done a, a very detailed study. And some scholars also say that Melchizedek suddenly appeared even before the institution of the Levitical priesthood. Before Moses instituted the Levitical priesthood. And it was already mentioned, you know, in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. You know, after uh, uh, Abraham rescued Lot and him, and then he encountered this, this uh, priest, Melchizedek, the high priest, who was both a king and a priest. And then Abraham began to uh, offer tithes to him, a tenth of the, of the spoil that he collected from the war and gave to Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Abraham. Of course, uh, in, uh, in the book of Hebrews, say that only the superior blessed the, the inferior. And I think to the Jews, uh, when you say that Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek, it's a shock. Because Abraham is the father of their nation. And is a, is a, is a man greatly revered, a prophet revered by the, by the Jews. And here he said that Megazedek is superior to Abraham. And of course, the main point of which the Hebrew writer in chapter 7 is saying that Megazedek priesthood is superior to the Levitical, Levitical priesthood. And then Jesus, who is after the order of Megazedek, because Melchizedek, if you read the, the Hebrew writer is trying to say that, uh, he is a priest appointed by God who is a forever priest. That means he is a permanent priest. And then suddenly, the writer also says that now Christ is a permanent priest appointed uh, by God after the order of Melchizedek. So if Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood, then Jesus' priesthood is also superior to the Levitical priesthood. And there is a huge implication of that. And to the Jews uh, who read the uh, Jewish Christian, who is tempted to go back to Judaism, uh, it's just like, let's say, you have been given the Mercedes, uh, and then would you go back to drive a Myvi? Would you, would you exchange... Uh, uh, a BMW or Mercedes for a Myvi, you know clearly that that car is more superior to the Myvi, the, 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 the Mercedes and the, uh, and, the, and the BMW. I'm only giving a, a, an analogy that we can understand and relate. But the Jews would clearly understand, and later I will come into that to, to show you the contrast, the comparison between the Levitical priesthood and Jesus' priesthood. Then you can understand why the Hebrew writers tell the Jewish Christian not to go back to Judaism, even though now you're being persecuted. Even though Judaism was the recognized religion in the Roman Empire, Christianity is not the recognized religion, and you are being persecuted. You're being opposed. Your properties were being confiscated. Lives are very difficult for you being a Christian. But don't go back to Judaism because it is not the one that you should go back to because God has brought in a new covenant through Jesus Christ. He is the high priest and his priesthood is more superior to the Levitical priesthood. Genesis chapter 14 verse 18 tells the story of Melchizedek, Abraham encountered him. And then Hebrew chapter 7 gives the, the, the explanation, uh, theological explanation. And then 
thousands of years later. And then Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, verse 10, chapter 7, verse 17, again talk about Melchizedek. It's a very, very interesting thing. And, and then Melchizedek disappeared from history. He appeared suddenly, mentioned once, and then disappeared. And God intended in the inspiration of the scripture that Melchizedek is the forever priest. And Jesus is patterned after, uh, he's the priest patterned after Melchizedek. He's the forever priest. And there is huge implication because in, in the Jews, uh, the high priest can only enter into the holy of holiest, holy of holies, once a year. And then after that, he will come the second year. And then later when he died, someone else will take his place. You know, he, his office is not forever. You cannot depend on him to atone for your sin. In fact, the, the sacrifices that he offered, the blood of the bull and the lamb, cannot take away your sin. Because those things point and prefigured and point towards the coming of the perfect lamb of God. Jesus being the lamb of God. Jesus is the high priest who offered his own life and, uh, and offer as a sacrifice to God. Only His blood can take away the sin. And His priesthood is forever. And He offers His life once and for all, never to be repeated. That is His priesthood. Whereas the Levitical priesthood, the high priest got to keep repeating every year, year after year. So the Jews are the children of those who are more perceptive to say, if God really forgive our sin, Remove our sin. Why do we need to keep doing that? Year after year, year after year. And when the high priest died already, then we got no assurance. Then you got to appoint another high priest and keep repeating year after year. And of course, scripture gives us an explanation that the high priest offered that animals as sacrifices, the blood does not remove our sin. They merely point towards Jesus being the perfect Lamb of God who, can, who offered His life and take away our sin. So the Hebrews author shows that Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the priesthood of the Levites who descended from Abraham. And Jesus' priesthood is superior because it is permanent like the Melchizedek priesthood and the Levitical priesthood was temporarily. Now, now I'm going to contrast uh, to see uh, what are the signific significant differences between Jesus' priesthood and Levitical priesthood. If I were to ask you to discuss uh, with the one next to you, uh, you can actually uh, uh, contrast to see. Um, the Levitical, Levitical priesthood, earlier I mentioned that the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year to intercede for the nation of Israel. Whereas Jesus as high priest has gone through heavens as in, and is now in the very presence of God. Hebrew chapter 4 verse 14. High priest in the Old Testament enter into the temple, into the presence of God only once a year. That's it. You see how holy God is? And he has to wear a bell, you know. And if the well, bell stopped sounding, you know that he was struck dead already. Jesus 
as the high priest according to Hebrew chapter 4 verse 14 has gone through heavens meaning that he's now in the very presence of God and he intercedes for us every day because he lives forever later I'll come to that about the function of Jesus being the high priest the Levitical priesthood is not permanent the high priest office came to an end once he died and to be replaced by another where well, Jesus priesthood is permanent and cannot be replaced he is a forever priest uh, that one I mentioned that already uh, the high priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sins and for the sins of the nation he has to offer sacrifice for his own sin but Jesus is sinless he doesn't need to offer sacrifice for his own sins but he offered his own life for your sin and my sin that is the difference between Jesus priesthood and the high priesthood in the in the in the Old Testament instead Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sin of his people and he offered his life as an atoning sacrifice once and for all and never to be repeated that's why when Jesus died he said it is finished and then he seated after he resurrected ascended on high he is seated at the right hand of God you know all the high priest eh, has to stand before the altar offer sacrifice and intercede because his work is never finished every now and then uh, another priest, high priest has to take over once he died where Jesus once he finished his work offered his life as the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sin then the scripture tells us that he was seated at the right hand of God he sat down meaning symbolizing his work of redemption has been finished the blood of the bulls and goats and lamb could never take away the sins of the people whereas the Jesus blood <clears throat> blotted out the transgression and sins and totally satisfied the demand of God's justice and propitiated the wrath of God <clears throat> and in the process we now have access to the presence of God through Jesus Christ now I want to talk about the two main function of Jesus as the priest the two main function of <clears throat> Jesus as the priest now this now I mentioned about John Calvin John Calvin in fact uh, he referred to uh, Jesus uh, function his priestly function two function uh, sacrifice and uh, uh, sacrifice and intercession and in fact the modern theologian often refer to John Calvin and they look into the scripture they also came out with two functions sacrifice and intercession uh, John Fain talk about sacrifice and intercession I think John Calvin also referred to reconciliation and intercession these are the two functions of course the sacrifice that Jesus offered his life as a sacrifice to atone for our sin is to reconcile us to God is reconciliation so remember the two significant function of Jesus as the high priest is reconciliation and intercession so I'll talk about the first function Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice for sin uh, earlier I kept saying that this is significant he offered himself as a perfect 
sacrifice to atone for our sin. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4. Referring to the sacrifice of Jesus, not uh, the blood uh, he offered. Uh, the sacrifice Jesus offered for sin was not the blood of animals such as bulls or goats. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Instead, Jesus offered himself as a perfect sacrifice. Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26 alluded to the fact that Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the age and to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the purpose, the main purpose of Jesus of offering, offering his life as a perfect sacrifice is to put away sin, to put away your sin. And this was a completed and final sacrifice and never to be repeated. This is an emphasis in the book of Hebrews again and again. And Jesus therefore fulfilled all the expectations that were prefigured not only in the Old Testament sacrifices, but also in the lives and actions of the priests who offered them. So that means Jesus was both the sacrifice and the priest who offered the sacrifice. He was both the sacrifice, he offered his life, but he is also the priest who offered the sacrifice. And so Jesus' atoning sacrifice fulfills the Old Testament sacrifices of the bulls, the goats and the lambs and the doves, the flour, the wine and the oil. And in the Old Testament, God used those sacrifices to teach the people what Jesus was later going to, to do. And this was in fact what Jesus did. And so that people, when Jesus died on the cross, offered his life as a perfect sacrifice. And when the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of the people and the Jews accepted Christ as their Savior and as their, as their Lord. And Jesus' atoning sacrifice accomplished a number of things. I want to go through there very quickly. There are four things. And I will, I will dwell on the, this first thing, expiation, in more detail because I think this is significant. Expiation is a theological term. simply means that Jesus bore our sins and took them on himself and did away with them. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Jesus took your sin upon himself and did away with them. Of course, Isaiah said that God, the Lord laid our iniquity on him. That means God laid our sin on him. But Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, say that Jesus bore our sin and took them on himself and did away with them. There's no contradiction. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, say that Jesus was made, uh, uh, he was made sin for us. That means Jesus became our substitute. He took the full penalty we owe God. What is this penalty? Penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. Meaning that because we are sinful, we inherited the nature, sinful nature from Adam, therefore we sin. We inherited sinful nature, we sin. When we sin, we actually uh, uh, incur the penalty of eternal punishment, uh, eternal damnation. So by expiation, Jesus wiped our slate clean. 
meaning that God forgives our sin fully and completely. So God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God, meaning we become right with God. Uh, God imputed the righteousness of Christ uh, to us. So when God sees us, God sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. We are like sinners covered by the righteousness of Christ. That's why Martin Luther has a phrase called, we are simultaneously righteous and yet sinful. And that has huge implication. Huh? When God sees us, we are righteous not because we are by nature righteous, because Jesus was made sin uh, uh, on our behalf. He who knew not sin was made sin, meaning he took our sin and God judged Jesus on our behalf. He became a substitute. He took away our sin. And they call it the double exchange, the greatest double exchange. We give our sin to Jesus and God give the righteousness of Jesus to us. So when God sees us, God sees the righteousness of Christ. Now this has huge implication for the Christian life. Let me ask you, do you, because you think that today you kept your devotion and today, because today you are good, you know, you, you behave, you know, you, you, you do some good deeds, then you come to God in prayer, you feel very bold. You say that, you know, I, 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 I have done well today, I'm obedient, I, I pray, I do my devotion, you know, I didn't do anything bad. So I, I'm bold. I can come boldly into the presence of God. You're depending on your righteousness. And then the next day, morning, you forgot to do your devotion. Then you start quarrel with your sibling or with your wife or your spouse. And then you, you went to school. Uh, you went to office. You start quarreling with people. You feel so bad. You know, you feel so sinful. In fact, you are sinful. And then you do want to come into the presence of God. And then in your prayer also, you feel so weak. You feel that you're being condemned by God. So you, you leave what love lays, huh? the, the theologians say, that kind of yo-yo. Because why? You don't understand that you are righteous. You have been uh, given righteousness of Christ, imputed the righteousness of Christ. And on that basis only, you can come boldly into the presence of God. You are simultaneously righteous and sinful. But if you depend on your righteousness, then you're going to go through your Christian life up and down, up and down, up and down. So God caused Jesus to take upon himself all our sins. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 to 6 says that Jesus took up our infirmities. Jesus took our sin, our transgression. He was pierced for our transgression. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The punishment that brought us reconciliation with God was upon him. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Even Isaiah, uh, 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 700 years before Jesus came into the picture, already prophesied what, what Jesus would do. Scripture uses several imageries to depict the forgiveness of sin. Now, this is good news, you know. If, if really when you read, I'm going to quote these three verses. I hope you write down. Huh? 
every time when you feel condemned, uh, you meditate and ponder upon this, what it means that Jesus became your substitute and took away your sin upon himself and give you his righteousness. And the scripture used several imagery to depict the forgiveness of our sin. That's why the gospel is such a good news. That's why Paul is able to say, therefore now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in union with Christ Jesus because you believe in Jesus, his finished work, then you are, God no longer condemns you. The first verse is Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 19. And he says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression? You do not stay angry forever but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You know, it's like God being the, the, the great fisherman. He threw... He threw all your iniquities into the depths of the sea, <clears throat> into the bottom of the sea. Now, of course, Scripture doesn't, at that point of time, didn't have the kind of understanding, tells us how deep, you know, of the sea. Let's imagine, uh, you know, the deepest, the, the bottom of the sea uh, is actually, the, they say the whole Mount Everest put in a, uh, that the sea will still cover Mount Everest. You know how deep? Huh? How deep? The, you go and check Google. I'm not, I'm not, you know, cook out this story. The deepest ocean, uh, the, the, the bottom of the sea uh, is even Mount Everest put and uh, it will still cover that. So the picture is this. Huh? God threw your sin into the depth of the sea. I have a friend who is a great fisherman. I always, always like to mention his name. Uh, he's a chairman of Evangelical Free Church, Zhao Jian. Loves fishing. Even the best fisherman cannot fish out your iniquity from the depth of the ocean. You know what is Micah trying to give us a picture? That is the, 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 the work that God has done. And pointing to the finished work of Christ. If you feel condemned, then you really don't understand what the scripture has said. Your sin has been hurled into the depths of the sea. Even the best fishermen can never fish out your iniquities. Isn't that this is a good news gospel? Psalms 103 verse 12 and 14. Psalms 103 verse 12 and 14. As far as the east is from the west so far, has God removed our transgression from us? Show me where is the, uh, the, the east. Maybe you point this east. Where is the west? That, of course, the hand is only can do that much. And you know, and if you know the east and the west, uh, is giving us a picture that you can never meet. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our trans transgression from us. Of course, the 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 Jews uh, in the temple, they when they went to temple, they bring their their goats. To the priest, uh, and one the, the priest lay one hand on the goat and the other hand on the other goat. The other goat is sent into the wilderness. That's why it's called the scapegoat. When it's sent into the wilderness, they cannot find back the goat any. And that picture helped them, you know, simple. Oh, my sin has been taken away. My sin has been taken away. But this picture of Psalms is as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgression from us. Because 
God knows how we are formed. He remembers we are dust. He formed us out of dust. He knows how weak we are, how, how frail we are in our, in our human nature. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake and remember your sins no more. Not that God is having amnesia. You know, not that God cannot remember, but it's actually help us in the human language that God remember your sins no more. He chose not to bring out your sin because it has been dealt with. By who? By His Son, Jesus Christ. By His precious blood. He took your place. That's why when the gospel is preached, people who fully understand the gospel, they will say this is a good news. No psychologist can ever help you in your problem in the sense when you feel shame because of sin, when you feel guilt because sinner is like that kind of stainer, stain, stick to you or not. You, when you committed certain sinner, whether it's sexual or embezzlement of fun or some serious sinner, your guilt feeling or your shame stick to you that can, like, doesn't want to go away. And only the blood of Jesus can cleanse you from that. Okay, let me, let me move on because I felt this is really gospel. This is something that you ponder and meditate. It will really heal you and bring healing and set you free, you know, to, to, to love God and to love people and to live that kind of life that God wanted you to live. Propitiation simply means that Jesus bore the wrath and the anger of God. God is holy, he hates sin. But Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the justice of God. He appeased the wrath of God. As it were, he, his death turned away God's anger from us. It's a theological term, propitiation. He appeased the anger of God. In other words, Jesus died for you, he shed his blood. And when God sees the righteousness of Christ, God's anger is subsided. God is no longer angry with you. Someone has already paid for your, the penalty of your sin. And the third one is reconciliation. God reconciled us through Christ, not counting our sin against us. Meaning that because of the death of Christ, we have been reconciled to God. We are no longer God's enemies. Instead, God actually adopted us as His children. And the fourth one is that the benefits is redemption. We have been purchased as God's people by the blood of Jesus and we belong to God forever. So Jesus being the high priest, he offered sacrifice and that sacrifice is his own life. And he offered his own life himself as the perfect sacrifice once and for all. He is perfect God, the son of God and perfect man. He is the only person who can atone for our sin because he's perfectly God, perfect God and perfect man. And that's why God the Father can be fully satisfied. His righteous requirement of justice has been fully satisfied and by, by Christ's death. And the theological and pastoral implication of Jesus as high priest is 
or as priest who offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sin, is that this means that we have a far greater privilege than people who live at the time of the Old Testament temple. Uh, much earlier I alluded to that. Uh, the priest can only enter into the first room of the temple, the holy place. And, and only the, the priest could go there. Then in the inner room of the temple, which is the holiest place, the holy of holies, only the high priest could go and could only do so only once a year. But now you have a high priest who has gone into heaven and who, while, while he was on earth, he, he offered his life as a perfect sacrifice and thereby reconcile you to God and bring you into the right, into the very presence of God. That's why Luke 23 verses 45, I have a picture when Jesus was crucified eh? and, 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 and the, the curtain or the veil of the temple uh, that closed off the Holy of Holy was torn into two uh, from top to bottom. Uh, you read the gospel account. This indicating symbolically on earth that the way of access to God in heaven was opened by Jesus' death. Would you see how privileged that you can now enter into the very presence of God. God is in heaven and then uh, Jesus have opened the way have, uh, that give us the access into the very presence of God. No wonder the author of Hebrew can make the exaltation to the believers. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us uh, through the curtain that is his body, uh, uh, let us, since we have a great priest over the house of God, now we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart with full assurance of faith. You, you need to have that full assurance of faith, nothing to be afraid. The, the Hebrew writer exhorts us to enter into the presence of God with boldness and with a sincere heart and to appreciate what Jesus has done for us. It is the perfect sacrifice. Uh, Hebrew chapter 10 verses 19 to 23. So as a perfect high priest, Jesus has opened for us the way of access to God. So we have a far greater privilege. So why, why are we not one to come and spend time and enter into the presence of God individually and collectively? Why would Christians go through the whole day, don't even pray to God, don't, don't draw near to God and enjoy His presence and to thank Him and appreciate Him? And secondly... We have a great high priest. Uh, help us to boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. That I already mentioned uh, uh, earlier on. Uh, that Jesus is the perfect mediator between God and us. He's the, the high priest. So we can approach the throne of grace uh, through Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of God. And I have people who kept asking me, can I just enter into the presence of God without, without referring to Jesus? Of course not. God is a holy God. You don't presume to enter into the presence of God by your own righteousness. You still got to go through Jesus. 
You go through Jesus. That's what Jesus has done. And finally, the second function I mentioned about uh, the first function about sacrifice or reconciliation. Jesus is the high priest. He has reconciled us to God. The second function is intercession. That Jesus as priest continually intercede for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 to 28. Show us that Jesus as the high priest continually prays for the believers. Because how this is so? Because Jesus lives forever. <clears throat> he was resurrected, seated at the right hand of God, and therefore He lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Unlike the other priests, that death prevented Him from continuing in His office. So you can count on Jesus to intercede for you always, or in fact every day. Every time you go to God through Jesus, you know that Jesus is interceding for you. And chapter 7, verse 25, Hebrews say that therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now this is amazing. Jesus is always there, intercede for us so that God, we can be saved completely. That's why I'm a reform. I subscribe to reform theology. I'm not an Armenian. People always make fun that once saved, always saved. I believe in the perseverance of the saint, that God will enable us to persevere to those who truly believe in Jesus, understand, understood His finished work, that we will be empowered to continue to persevere. But the Bible talks about God persevere with us. Because of Jesus' finished work, we will be saved completely because Jesus is the right hand of God interceding for you, for me. He's interceding for us. When Jesus was on earth, he interceded for Peter, that Peter would not fall away. That's why when Peter denied Jesus and later on, Peter came back to Jesus. Jesus really performed the priestly function while on earth. And in heaven, Jesus will continue to intercede for you and for me because God is able to save us completely and He say that to those who come to God through Jesus because Jesus always lived to intercede for you. It's, it's so comforting that Jesus intercede for us. That's why in my prayer for my, for my children, for Sarah and for Sam, for Constance, for my wife, uh, who is sick and for the church for you when I think of you people who are struggling in your faith uh, I, uh, those who are having gone through severe trial I thank God that Jesus is interceding for you Jesus is pleading for you uh, such a high priest meets our needs in verse 26 he said that one who is holy blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens that Satan cannot touch him and he's there interceding for us. And so the pastoral implication is this. We have assurance that God will persevere with us to save us completely. And that is the assurance of salvation. Because Jesus, our high priest, is always interceding for us. So Jesus continually lives in the presence of God to make specific requests and to bring specific petition before God on our behalf. This is my interpretation. But there's another interpretation. They say that Jesus interceding 
For us, it's because Jesus standing seated be, at the right hand of God because of his hand being pierced, <coughs> reminding God always of his finished work. Sorry, I, I mustn't move away. Uh, that reminding Jesus is like his, his pierced hand uh, is interceding for us. I think there are two interpretations, uh, but I would say both are equally valid. Uh, that God, that Jesus reminding God of his finished work, totally sufficient for our salvation. And Jesus also pleading with God, you know, interceding. Why I say that? Because Romans chapter, chapter 8 also alluded to Jesus interceding for us. Uh, chapter 8, if you, if you turn to Romans chapter 8. Let me turn to Romans chapter 8 very quickly. In fact, Romans chapter 8 talk about the Holy Spirit also interceding for us. Uh, the second person in the Trinity and the third person in the Trinity also interceding for us. And he said that in verse, verse uh, chapter 8, verse 34, who is he that condemns? Actually, the answer is no one can condemn you because Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And this one is in the context of suffering. Huh? Who can ever separate us from the love of, of Christ? Nothing, because Christ is interceding for us. And then in earlier part, in the verse 18 to the, to the section, is talking about the Holy Spirit interceding uh, 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 for us with, with, word, uh, with groan, you know, uh, too deep for words. And so that we will do the will of God. Interceding, when you run out of prayer, when you run out of words to say to God, when you are so painful in your, in your, in your, in your experiences, what you go through, when you feel the pain, uh, when you pray for someone you love, going seeing that someone who is suffering, and then you pray to God, you agonize, you pray, you know, in pain. And you know that even when you run out of prayer, Jesus is interceding for you. And the Holy Spirit is also interceding for you. So Jesus continually lives in the presence of God to make specific requests and to bring specific petition before God on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 to 16 show us what kind of a high priest who is interceding for us. It shows us Jesus as a great high priest is now at the very presence of God and he is a compassionate high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Chapter 4, Hebrews 4, 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and then verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. And verse 16 says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, uh, to help us in our time of need. Now earlier I mentioned that the Jewish Christian whom the Hebrew writers was addressing, were tempted to give up their Christian faith. Have you ever tempted to give up? I know of some Christians who are tempted because of what they've gone through. Uh, people say, how come my life is so difficult? I look at other people, I look at the Facebook, uh, wow, they go for holidays, 
Their family, husband and wife, children, all so good one. How come my family is that bad, you know? How come my parents died when I was so young? How come, you know, how come everybody is so good except me? So the person want to give up the faith. How come? You know, you keep questioning. Like the Jewish Christians who were tempted to give up their faith by reverting to Judaism. And the author exhorted them to hold firmly to the faith they profess. The reason he gave is that Jesus, a great high priest, is able to sympathize with your weaknesses, whatever the weaknesses they may be. Jesus understands your problems, understands your circumstances that you go through, whatever difficulties. He knows what you are going through. Jesus, in his human nature, though without sin, while on earth, have been tempted in every way just as we are. Now, I don't have time. I know that uh, I've already taken a lot of time. Uh, let me quickly allude to, uh, allude to uh, Hebrew chapter 5, uh, verse 8 to 10. And, and, uh, and he said that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was hurt because of his reverence submission. Now, uh, many commentators say that this alludes to Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 45. And he said that Jesus was sorrowful and troubled. And listen to what, what the text say, the gospel writer. Jesus said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Have you been overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? Have you, have you, have you in your, your prayer to God and you cry to God so sorrowful that you, you know, almost like you want to die? Have you come to that point? Jesus had. And Jesus said, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. You know, Jesus knew of his impending crucifixion. He was struggling to do the will of God in his human nature. He understand what you are going through. You also struggle to do the will of God. But yet, then he said, Yet not I will, but as you will. And then in a, in a, in a subsequent uh, after the, in, the garden of, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the disciple was sleeping, he went back to the disciple and said, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He was struggling genuinely in his uh, human nature. A cry that was uttered in the stress of tremendous tension or agonizing pain. Jesus knew even the desperate prayer of tears. Have you come to that? To the situation of the desperate prayer of tears? So Jesus could identify with our pain because he too had experienced agonizing pain. And Jesus could deal gently with us because he shared our human struggle, though without sin. You know, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 3 talk about the high priest selected from man because of his own weaknesses. Uh, he, he's able to sympathize. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant or gone astray. Uh, he himself is subject to weakness. So Hebrew writer is saying that even a human high priest uh, in, the, in the temple could, could deal gently with those who gone astray, uh, who, 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 who are ignorant. Because he himself, he know, when he looked at his own life, he knew how broken, how weak and how sinful he is. 
Uh, just like, that's why a pastors who understand that, look at your own, own sinful nature, you will not deal with people harshly. Priests must be at one with others. They must have gone through the same experiences and must be in full sympathy with others. And that's why the Hebrew writer used the word metrapathen. This Greek word means to deal gently, to feel gently. It describes the attitude which does not get angry at the faults of others, the mistakes of others, or, 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 or get angry with the sin of others. And of course, does not condone uh, the, the sin. Does not condone, uh, uh, but does not get angry and judgment, uh, very judgmental. But who is committed to offering gentle yet powerful sympathy, which by his very patience turns people back to the right way. Now I can think of a, a gospel of John, uh, uh, when the, the incident where Jesus forgave the woman who was shamefully paraded publicly by the Pharisee because of the sin of adultery. Uh, the Pharisees were all condemning the woman. Then Jesus wrote something on the sand uh, and, and the Pharisees one by one all left. Uh, some people say Jesus was writing their sin and, and Jesus knew their sin and wrote. Of course, we never know like, what the John uh, uh, gospel writer. And then, uh, Jesus said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And then she, the, the, the adulterous woman said, no one, sir. Then Jesus said, then uh, uh, neither do I condemn you. And Jesus declared, go now and live your life of sin. You see how tender, gentle Jesus deal with a woman? Uh, both tender yet never condone her sin. You know, go now and live your life of sin. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go now. And, and live your life of sin. So Jesus as high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way just as we are and the writer quickly say, yet without sin. Now how is it that Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are? Jesus never got married. Jesus never had the, the kind of uh, temptation that you went through, uh, those with children. He, he never had that. But what I think the author is trying to say that the fact that Jesus was without sin, it means that he knew the depths and the tension and the assault of temptation which we never can know. He shared our humanity without sin. He, he's without sin. He shared our human experiences, not in his entirety, but in the intensity far more than our, our, our uh, experience of the temptation. How so? Let me explain. We fall to sin long before the tempter has put out the full force of temptation. You know, it's just like you walk past the dessert and then you look at dessert. Not even for three seconds you, you take the, 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 the burnt cheesecake. You cannot resist the temptation. You know, you, you cannot stand there for hours and not... not because you, you, the, you, know, you, don't, you cannot stand the full force of temptation. We never know temptation and its fiercest because we succumb too quickly long before that stage is reached. But Jesus was tempted far beyond anything we might experience. You look at the whole gamut of Jesus' experience, uh, you know, what he went through. Because in Jesus' case, the tempter put everything he possessed into the attack. You know, the Satan attacked the sonship of God. 
parade the whole kingdom and, and, uh, and ask Jesus, I will give you all this. You know, I mean, look at the temptation of Jesus. Now think of this in terms of pain. Eh? There is a degree of pain in which the human body can stand. But once that degree of pain is reached, what would happen? Uh, let's say you reach to the intensity, the limit of pain, eh? you will faint because you cannot take it any. You will lose consciousness. So that there are certain level of uh, uh, agonies of pain which are not experienced or felt. You will faint. You know, up to certain limit, uh, your body, your mind cannot take it, uh, you faint already. I'm using this analogy that faced with temptation, we succumb, but Jesus went to the limit of temptation and far beyond and still did not sin. It's just like the pain we reach level 5, we faint already. Jesus went to level, level 10, level 12, level 15, level 20. He went through that pain. He was still conscious. The intensity of the temptation, he never gave him. So, so he's trying to say that Jesus fully understands what you're going through. He knows your temptation. So what does that imply? Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. And so we are exalted to approach the throne of grace. Why it is called throne of grace means is that God is gracious. Jesus, who is our high priest, interceding for us, pleading for us to God. And God understands. Jesus knows that we are weak and, and, and we can go and approach the throne of grace with confidence that we will never be turned away. And never, uh, God will never say, you are so too sinful to come into my presence. You have succumbed to this temptation. You are not qualified at all to come into my presence. God will never say that. And, and that's why the Hebrew writer exalted us because we have such a compassionate high priest. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus fully understands what we are going through. Jesus is the perfect high priest because he's perfectly God and perfectly one with us. Because he has known our lives, he can show us sympathy and mercy and help us, give us power to overcome temptation. And he gives us grace to become the kind of people he intended us to be. The high priest who is our sacrifice, who is our intercessor. He reconciled us to God by offering his life as a perfect sacrifice. He lives forever in the presence of God as a permanent high priest, as our redeemer, as our elder brother, as our intercessor. Every day pleading for you. Would you not dare to come into the presence of God, the throne of grace, with full confidence and the assurance of faith that God will save you completely, utterly, and so that one day you will be there with Jesus forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is our great high priest after the order or the pattern of Melchizedek, which means that he is forever our high priest, high priest interceding for us and bringing us, reconcile us to God and to help us 
in our sanctification and later on in our uh, glorification that will be glorified. How amazing is this truth that helps us daily to live with full assurance of our faith, with full assurance of the confidence to draw near to you, Almighty God, to know that we can receive mercy no matter how we have fallen into temptation and have sinned against you, that we will confess and come back to you and to know that we have a great high priest and a perfect redeemer who had died for us and paid for the penalty of our sin, that we can also find grace to help us in our life, in our time of need, that we can start all over again. Uh, uh, that, that you not only give us second chance, you keep giving us opportunity and opportunity to repent and to come back to you. You completely understand what we are going through. And so, Lord, we ask for mercy and grace that we may live a life of sanctification and that we may draw near to you and appreciate you and adore you and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.